you're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of the Book Talk Today podcast. Today, we are joined by Tracy Follows. Tracy is the CEO of Future Made, a futures consulting, advising global brands, and specializing in the application of foresight to boost business. She is a futurist and author of the book, The Future of You, Can Your Identity Survive 21st Century Technology, which we'll be discussing today. It's a pleasure to have you on, Tracy. Thank you for the invite. Great to be here. You're welcome. And like we were saying before we started, it's a pleasure to talk about this subject. It seems like it's a subject that is coming into the fore in many different industries, whether you be in medicine, artificial intelligence, in the political environment, it seems like artificial intelligence and data and these topics are in the fore in in the political discourse as well in in society in general so it's a it's a great book to read i thoroughly enjoyed it i think a great place to start is why is it important to talk about the future of you yes and the future of you and you and you because yeah. what i really wanted to try and get away from was a conversation or debate about big tech it can always feel very remote very corporate um, and a lot of the media coverage is very much about you know what is the corporate what is the corporation the tech platform doing and I wanted to bring it down to a sort of very human level and say well actually it's not big tech it's little you and little me and actually what are we going to do and how are we going to be affected um, by what's changing um, with our identity through digital technology primarily. And I wanted to bring it down to this human level. And I do think it is important because, well, there's two things. Generally, we have been a little bit worried about some of the issues around data, privacy, personal data capture, monitoring, surveillance, all of that. But then alongside that, in the last year, (laughs) we've used all of these kinds of services almost without flicking an eye you know because we've been so desperate for some of these essential services we've been stuck at home or we're remote working and then you really see some of these services that that really rely on the exchange of very personal data come to the fore and we've kind of given that a pass because we've decided well you know the value exchange is fine <laughs> it's mm. convenience and that's what I need and I'm happy to exchange my data for that so we really do have this quite ambivalent attitude and I think what I'm trying to say Oh, you've read the book, so you can tell me what you think the message is. But what I'm trying to say is each individual has to take personal responsibility to find out a bit more, to make themselves a bit more well-informed about some of these technological implications for society and for you as an individual, because no one else is going to do it. The state isn't going to do it. The technology platforms aren't going to do it. We can't really rely on anyone else. And so we have to make an effort ourselves. Definitely. I think it's the the way that I interpreted the book was very much a question to you as you being the reader, saying how much are you willing to let people perhaps govern the way that they use your data and also becoming aware about what these institutions and companies do with your data. It's not the sense that you just use it freely and they don't do anything with it. They they do use it in, in a particular way. Mm. That's very insightful. Yes, it is. I was quite keen on having the interrogative, you know, so rather than making a statement, I really did want to, because it was, in fact, it was what I was thinking as well. I was thinking in my own mind, well, can my identity survive this? And obviously, the more I'd been researching it, although I was already interested in it kind of years ago, and it developed over time. And I thought, well, this is a question we should all be asking ourselves. So you're quite right. And hopefully, people will ask themselves that question as they read through some of the book and then go and do their own further research. You know, this is just a starter. The book is supposed to be a starter for that. You know, people need to go off and learn a bit more about digital currencies or, um, you know, genetics or uploading their brain, whatever it might be. Um, you know, it's, uh, yes, it's, it's all there to be, to be investigated, I think. What were some of the key questions or, or concerns that you had personally that made you want to explore this further? Well, you, you, you read the book, so you'll know that there is a key moment when I could not log into Facebook 
I went back through my emails the other day actually and discovered it was 2016 (laughs) and I got a flurry of emails coming at me saying you know to my email address which was my name it was written to Byron Lowerth and it was dear Byron you know this is what your friends have been up to and I looked and I was like yeah that's great that looks like a lot of fun but I don't know any of those people and in fact I'm not Byron so I thought I'm gonna have to re-log in reset my password details and um, tried to do that and and you'll know from the story that uh, actually they they took my passport and uh, said thanks very much 10 minutes later came back said no this isn't you Mm. Um, so that was really quite a moment where I thought, hmm, how am I going to get out of this then? Because if my passport isn't seen as the authoritative, you know, authentication of me being me, who do I turn to? And there's nothing in the system that is going to allow you to, to do that. And so actually, even today, I have no Facebook account, which is really annoying because I'd like to get Oculus Rift and do the VR, but I think you have to have a Facebook account. <laughs> so it is annoying. And I started to think about that. And of course, as many people know, once you start to, it's like once you see a green car, then every single car you see is green and you just notice the thing that is buzzing around in your head. So I started to see everything through the lens of identity, authentication, verification, sort of fragmented identities. And this idea that our identity is distributed out on the web. So it's all in these little bits and pieces across across the internet. And actually, what does that mean for the integrity of my identity? Because I don't feel like I'm in control of it anymore. And so everything, I'm, so the last few years, I've been absolutely obsessed with it and finding it everywhere now. Mm. Yeah, you talked about that in the book and at the beginning where you talked about the Dolly Parton challenge, sort of oh, that. Yes that challenge where you, if no one knows about it, essentially, when was it last year or the year before? I can't, can't I remember. Was, actually. I think it was early, was it early 2020? Yeah, I think it was early last year. Mm. And essentially what it was is it was a social media viral thing. I don't know the best way to describe it, but essentially I mean, what you do yeah. uh, in, uh, in, a, in a photo, what you do, you split it up, up into quarters. And then in each quarter, it's sort of like a LinkedIn photo, a, a Tinder photo, an Instagram one and a Facebook one, if that's correct. Mm. Yeah, and then you make it applicable to each one of those platforms, and you you find a photo. And like you said in the book, it seems somewhat harmless. But then if you look a couple of layers down, you realize that it's actually we identify. And I asked myself that question when I was reading the book: is like, do I identify on different platforms? And yes, I do. On my LinkedIn, I wear my nice shirt and I wear my nice jumper. But on Instagram, I'm just a bit more sort of you know, casual, it is, it is what it is. <laughs> and I can say different things that perhaps I don't say on a, on a LinkedIn platform. So yes. do you find that in your, when you were doing your research, when you come across individuals that that profile of what it means to be an individual, like you said, changes dependent on the platform in which you're using it? Definitely. And I think as I've put that out there now, people are saying, oh yes, actually that I do do that now. So it's an acknowledgement that actually that is happening. And you could put it down to mood because we've always had a slightly different discourse or dialogue with different types of people in different walks of life or you know, we present ourselves as in a slightly different mood. But I think there's something more behind it. I think it's and I think probably what it is, it's the it's the the need to please the audience. So it's not just about I feel in a different mood. It's I need to be seen that I'm in this particular mood or this type of expression of myself or personality because I want the acknowledgement of an, a particular audience and the LinkedIn audience is very different to the Instagram audience which let's hope is very different to the Tinder audience but I think that's what's going on which is then you have to question you know what are you doing to your identity or how is it being perhaps not manipulated but influenced mm-hmm. by the way in which you think it will be received by others. So I think that's what's interesting about it. I mean, we all saw the uh, <laughs> we all saw the guy who turned up to the jury hearing saying, "I am here. It's me. I'm not a cat." But he had the cat face filter on. <laughs> I think that's very much the case. You know, you go into these different rooms, if you like, of your life now, and you present yourself in a completely different way. That was an inappropriate way, and it was accidental. But there's plenty of sort of intentional versions of you that you present so that you have the yeah you 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 please your audience and they come back for more Mm. i would say that every single interaction that you have with an individual is a fragmented sense of identity anyway because if you go to a job interview you're going to act very differently 
with that individual than if you got hired and that you've known that person for a couple of years afterwards. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily, I, I, I don't think, and the thing that I did like about the book in, in this sense is it wasn't a question of what's good and what's bad. Because mm. I think sometimes it's, you can either be, like you said, you're an optimist potentially, but then- I'm an anxious people... optimist. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a rational optimist. And then, you, or you can be the pessimist. But I think it's doing a disservice on the education front if you're coming at it with an opinion rather than just presenting what the situation is and what the potential downsides and upsides. I think that's a very interesting point because there's a lot of work in futures and foresight at the moment where people are moving towards activism. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's it's a different way of doing futures than setting out what you think is going to happen, what you think the probabilities and possibilities are, and then later having a point of view about what would be what would be best, what would be the ought. I always think you have to get to the is first. What are, what is going on? what is happening and what are the driving forces for some of this change and what are the the benefits and drawbacks of both and you're right that's what I was trying to do in the book and I don't really necessarily want to present a strong point of view about what is or what isn't right because again I'm putting the question back to the reader it is for you to decide because it's you your life as an individual and it's your personal responsibility to to answer this question or do your research in the way that you will. Um, and if you don't want to do anything, that's fine too. Um, but um, I suppose it's like a soft challenge to people. So I didn't really want to sort of impress upon people too much my own point of view. Yeah, I think it's difficult, especially when you go into this field in in describing this quite technical subject to not state an opinion. I mean, I've, I've read quite a few books on artificial intelligence really lately. It seems to be something that just by chance I'm reading more books on. This one wasn't so much, like you said, it was more of an introduction. Some of the other ones on artificial intelligence are more on the technical side, which are com- I find completely mind-boggling. Um, I don't know if you've read a book by called Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. I've read half of it. Yeah, I was I was slightly confused. I'm not going to lie. And I'm currently want to want to read Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom as well. There's, there's oh, yes, I read that a, a, okay. a long time ago. That, that, I mean, that is good. And it sets out the, the key themes, of course. But I mean, also, you know, there, there are lots of conversations happening about artificial intelligence now. So a lot of these books, as you say, there are many around. And so there is a big debate now. So it's good. It's become conversational and people are doing podcasts and YouTube videos. And it's becoming more of a real life discussion rather than a theoretical portrayal in, a, in, in the book only. The, the interesting thing for me, and it seems like as a common thread, it was a common thread throughout your book and the other books I've been reading, Artificial Intelligence. The more you talk about the technical aspects of artificial intelligence, the more the conversation of philosophy, meaning what does it mean to be human come into play rather than the technology itself. Mm-hmm. Are you finding that? I think that's exactly right. I think for, and actually it's it's partly going further now. So one of the things I've noticed in the last, say, two years is that obviously there's been a lot of work around the ethics of AI and how the two sit together. And you're right, the philosophy around the technology of AI or machine learning or artificial intelligence. But now it's moving into the legal field. And so actually it is literally moving into, so what should the policy be? Mm -hmm. Um, It's not just the principles of behaviors or frameworks for guidance um, or whatever it might be. It's not just for engineers. It is now literally much more a societal uh, policy area. And so you move into the legals and, you know, I do get into a little bit of that in the book where I talk about what will happen in the future if artificial intelligence gets to the point where it doesn't necessarily have to be the singularity or anything, but you're working alongside, let's say, quite sophisticated non-biological intelligence could it be that that non-biological intelligence that could be a robot it could be something else is really required to have some sort of rights itself and so you get to the point where potentially not just humans but non-biological intelligences do have some kind of legal rights as persons alongside you in in the workplace or maybe even in the home if you think about social robots and the way we might have companion robots in a home environment so I think some of these questions are really much more practical now and that's probably the big difference over the last two years people because people are really building stuff and putting stuff into environments where it really does matter it's no longer just theoretical do you think the emphasis needs to be on the regulators to actually create a framework about creating a legal system around this before it sort of 
gets to a stage where, for instance, if you look at the social media companies now, it seems as if the government are chasing their tail. Yeah, I mean, I do wonder about that. I do wonder about whether it's a case of them chasing their tail or they don't really want to do anything um, and they'll wait until it gets to a point where they have to because I guess one of the other points I also like to make is that we think there's the technological world of the corporates the tech platforms and then there's like the civil service the civil service the the state um, the government um, but actually increasingly both of those sorts of parties are governing our everyday life and both are very technical and I think it is the case that they recognize already that the only way to deliver public services in the future is for them to somehow, I wouldn't say merge, but um, cooperate, even consolidate maybe. Augment. Or, yeah, augment much, uh, much more closely because it just seems clear that everybody seems to believe that a technological state is the successful state of the future. And as you see nations creating, recreating themselves as digital nations, then they're gonna to have to rely much more on the technology platforms. I guess we saw it a bit in track and trace during coronavirus, you know, would it be an NHS type app and platform versus would it be a Google or Apple? Who's really got the competencies? It was pretty clear in that uh, situation who had, but I guess going forward when you think about all kinds of public services, not just in health, you know, who does have the competency? It's going to take public and private together, probably. And so I wonder whether it's that the regulators don't want to get involved or whether they're, they're waiting um, to not get involved until they really, really have to, because if essentially there's a, one, one party is, is really required to deliver on behalf of the citizen really now the interesting thing for me when when in the book you touch upon sort of wearable technology in the, in the medical field when it comes to technology or artificial intelligence or this subject i feel like the medical industry is the most interesting for me to read about mm. because it seems as if when you talk about data when you talk about for instance the use of social media platforms it's very much the case of you uploading something onto a device or onto the internet for other people to see but when it comes to your biological data that's something on a different level of privacy and uh, wearable technologies whether you think about you know apple devices whoop straps whatever it might be it seems as if data and i know the nhs do it at the moment they have they store data for genomes is that correct and yes. they're building they're building up a library of of that type of data so the nhs is probably at the forefront out of all health systems of actually collating data and where do you think the issues come with collecting data when it comes to our individual health statistics, um, mm. whatever it might be, in comparison to the use of, let's say, social media data? Well, the first point I guess to make is about informed consent to really even realize that it's going on. So I think sometimes we assume that, oh, we're going to sort of give over our data. Mm. But I think when we're under quite a lot of surveillance as we are and we don't really acknowledge day-to-day -day things like facial recognition gesture control technology like the new amazon store in ealing that's just walkout technology how does that work well it works from you know cameras and sensors i mean they're monitoring you all the time they can build up a profile a 3d profile probably of you in fact amazon years ago bought a company called body labs which could uh, take you and make a 3D sort of rendering of you, presumably. So in the future, you can mill around in um, a 3D version of Amazon and do your shopping that way. But even if you look at some of the Chinese technology companies like Face++ who do facial recognition, you'll, if you look on the drop-down menu of their website, okay, they do face matching, they do face merging, do, 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 do look down a bit further, they do beauty score, skin status evaluation and you kind of have to question oh that's interesting who's making that judgment then mm. and on the basis of what data i mean okay that's in china it's the same sort of principle and i suppose people are going around not necessarily aware about how much of their personal or biological data now is being given over to some of these systems and we're definitely moving from companies being interested in behavioral uh, data, behavioral targeting, to biometric data and biometric targeting. And that's one of the interesting things, of course, about um, vaccination certificates and the like, is that you probably 
certainly this is trialed in Africa, you give a, you get your vaccination, they take your fingerprint, you go away with your sort of digital ID, you never need a physical card for that, and they're left with all of your data. Mm-hmm. So do people really realise that that's the exchange? And then the, the second thing that I think is really interesting is how much of that data, who, wherever it reside, resides, whoever has control of it, is combined with other people's data, or is it just yours? So in the World Economic Forum's um, report about the Internet of Bodies, it was clear to me that there's a suggestion slash coercion towards combining everybody's biological data so that it can build biobanks, biodata banks, and that governments or NGOs can have a feel for what's going on at a population level. Now that might be fine, but it might not. You know, I might not want to share my data to that extent. And again, there's a slight coercion, I think, coming in the future where oh, it has to be done, well, you should do it because it's for the common good. Um, And people feel like that it is their responsibility to to do it. And again, we need to stop and think about it might be a responsibility, but maybe you have a greater responsibility to yourself as an individual and you have to weigh those things up, of course. I don't think it should be assumed that there's a, a communitarian advantage that outweighs everything else and that we should hand over all of this data willingly or unwilling, uh, knowingly or unknowingly to someone somewhere in the cloud. But what happens when it gets to the stage where you've got like a microchip when you've been born? Well, that you talk, it, you talk about that in the book. I do, yes, because I, I mean, you can just imagine, I can, maybe, I don't, it'd be interesting to see what you say. I can imagine that happening, that we become, I mean, in a funny sort of way, it's where we are with um, the COVID vaccine, okay, Uh, adults are encouraged to take the the vaccine quite quickly we've got to well children need to have the vaccine we need to vaccinate all children for hang on a minute where did that come from so one can imagine in the future all right adults are um, are taking a a chip to do whatever they want to do open their car door or their home or have a meeting or make a call whatever it is and very quickly you get into well actually it would be so much more convenient wouldn't it if we could just get the biological data it make your life so much more seamless and frictionless so convenient and and actually why don't we you know chip the baby when it's born because you know that's the place to do it in hospital or wherever and it would be the safest and you could just see that there is a whole narrative of uh, and before you know it you've you've gone along with some of this nodded along and then perhaps potentially it's a bit too late yeah and then you end up with what elon musk is doing with Neuralink, where you drill a hole in your head yeah put some put some foam down it and you've got access to the whole into internet if i have it rightly um you using your brain that? waves would, would you do that I, do you know what I wouldn't be the first. Let's just put it that way. I'd like to see it play out a bit more. I don't know. I'm I'm one of my favorite movies is The Matrix. And in that movie, he sort of sits back in his chair and they also plug him in and then he like downloads all these, whether it's karate or different forms of martial arts. And I always thought to myself, that would be really cool to do. But it's a movie. <laughs> and movies very very rarely play into reality in the same type of way so I don't know that's a di- it's a difficult question to to ask would would I would I do it because I'd like to see how it plays out there was a legal case if I remember right a few years ago when it was ruled that the smartphone and the data on the smartphone that belonged to someone was actually an extension of them and their mm. identity because that data is so personal it really, if you're going to open up that phone illegally and access all of that data, really, it belongs to them and it's an infringement on the person. And that's what we have to keep remembering, I think. If you're going to have a microchip or you're going to allow Elon to lace up your brain, I think that's it. The question is, hang on a minute, what is the tech platform? What is the corporation that I now sort of answer to? <laughs> because I'm not going to own that technology so just in the way that I have terms and serv- terms, terms of service when I sign up to you know, Apple, when I've got my iPhone or whatever, I'm going to have to sign up to somebody who operates this within my biological system. Who is that going to be? Can I trust them? What if they change the terms of service you know, three or four years down the line and I can't do much about it? What if I've already downloaded you know, three different languages and now I want to get out of this service? I suddenly going to be back to only speaking English. Yeah. I don't know. 
I know it sounds fantastical, but these are the sorts of implications that you have to work through. It was interesting in the book as well that you talked about the idea of moving away. I can't remember the individual who said it, but moving away from seeing governments as the bodies for, let's say, distributing services and 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 in the like, and the move to, like, say, a Google or an Apple being the yes. new national body for 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 doing all these services. Mm -hmm. That was right. I think that's a quote from Adam Townsend, who definitely said, you know, Amazon is a country now um, yes. and they, the, the, you know, the service, the platform is replacing the nation states. And lots of people feel that the likes of Amazon or Google or whoever are more responsive to them as citizens or, or users than the government is responsive to them as, you know, citizens or users mm. in the country, nation states. And I do think there's I definitely think there's a truth to that and you can see where the trend is going but as nations digitize become let's say a bit more like Estonia you can be a small nation but you can literally be global be everywhere because you've allowed other people no matter where they're located geographically to partake in and be to some extent a citizen or a resident or e-resident of your nation then literally there are no borders and everything operates in the cloud once it operates in the cloud yeah then you just got these platforms sort of competing with each other and each digitized nation state is competing with their what was neighbor to be more and more competitive. So you can see that that is that we are going to move from the land into into the cloud in a sense. Yeah. And in the book as well, you talked about the blockchain. I know a lot of people think when they think of blockchain, they only think of the cryptocurrency. Mm. I think cryptocurrency is interesting, but I think that the actual technology behind the cryptocurrency is even more interesting. I think it'd be good to just give a bit of introduction into what blockchain is and the impact that potentially blockchain will have on well, everything, to be fair, because when you understand its implications, I think that sort of everything can be turned around through using the blockchain technology. Yes, indeed. It's hard to explain it, although I have, as you'll notice, tried to explain it in one short paragraph. <laughs> but block blockchain is really a, a method of storing anything that is valuable anything that is of value. And so you can store it on this network, which is made up of many nodes. So there isn't a central entity in control of it, which means rather than it being a very top-down hierarchical structure where somebody at the top makes a decision or gives you authority and it trickles down, it's a networked system. And every time something gets added to the blockchain, a bunch of computers all around the world across the network carry out these puzzles, when they get the right answer, ding, you know, that piece of information gets added to the blockchain, a new, a new block gets added to it, and that is immutable. That is trusted, it can't change, that is recorded forever, and it is recorded in a way that is recorded across the whole of the system. Therefore, there is no one certain person in charge who can keep that information to themselves or do something with that information. It's shared across the network. So when this happens, you can literally put any kind of information onto the blockchain that you deem valuable. So it could be credentials to prove your identity. It could be a credential that proves you own a piece of land. So I think the land registry are making quite a lot of headway in using blockchain. We've seen it for diamonds. So if you want to record a specific diamond you want to know the sort of timestamp of when it was discovered or mined or who bought it or how how much they paid for it that's going to go on the blockchain and one of the interesting things is it's the authentication of things that really matter and have value and so we'll see this in the luxury market i think quite soon where you really want to sort of timestamp and record forever in an immutable way luxury items and you want to record the ownership of them so that could, again could be quite interesting what I also talk about in the in the book is that potentially you could use it for voting. So anything that is deemed of value could be stored and managed in this way. And that is, you know, incredibly different to the system we've had for the last well, however many years, certainly the last 80 years, mm -hmm. which has relied very much on um, hierarchy in a centralized structure. This is very decentralized and it will mean that there are new winners and certainly new losers in this, this new kind of network society. I think the the thing that I liked about that description that you gave just now, and obviously the title of the book as well, is the U function of it. 
because the emphasis is on the individual to understand the technologies that are coming to see how they can integrate themselves within that technology. I think that decentralized function works when the population is educated on mm. how they can go about doing so. And it's whose responsibility is that education. Mm. Is it the government's uh, responsibility? My personal opinion is that education should always be a personal uh, responsibility. And it's up to each individual to educate themselves on a system like blockchain to see how they can integrate themselves within mm. that system. There are sort of, I agree with that completely. But there are sort of leaders that pop up in society. I mean, um, love him or loathe him, Elon Musk will pop up and say, right, I'm converting 1.5 billion shares worth in, in Tesla into Bitcoin. And then everybody <laughs> literally has a duty to find out what is Bitcoin and therefore what is the blockchain? Because it's just such a major move. I mean, it really is. And then Apple coming out and saying, well, Apple Pay will now take um, Bitcoin, etc. And you get these leaders then making these moves and challenging the status quo. And then it's incumbent on the individual to do a little bit more research. But I agree with you. It has to be down to an individual education. Um, I mean, that's the beauty of education. Anybody, you know, hopefully anybody can have access to it and you know improve their understanding and therefore their life yeah definitely an interesting thing that i wanted to talk about in relation to that was job displacement a lot of what's happening especially in the us around the last presidential election was, was about ubi or universal basic income and a lot of the tech books that i'm currently reading on artificial intelligence talk about what will happen with job displacement do you think that are you one of those people that think that it will be job displacement or do you think it's it'll be it'll open up opportunities for more types of jobs and it'll move us away from more manual jobs for a large subset of the population to more it will open up a new section of jobs rather than for instance just taking existing jobs and then all those people are displaced yes i i think the latter it's very hard to know but it I think everything points towards the latter. If you think about years ago, people, you know, used to have horses and there were a lot of people working in agriculture. Then we had the car and it was the industrial revolution. So we've got a car and people would say, oh, yeah, but that will replace, you know, people who, you know, with horses and carriages. But actually you get garages opening up with people who have to do MOTs, you know, um, and there's a whole industry then that, that grows organically out of the technological change and the way it affects society. So... I think it's really the tasks that are going to be replaced. Mm -hmm. And as you just suggested there, many of our physical tasks or even logistical tasks actually are going to be um, replaced. And many of the things that humans end up doing are, are going to be much more cognitive. I mean, we can see that already. We can see it in the trends. There's plenty of McKinsey and Deloitte reports um, showing this and, and plenty of uh, forecasts for the future. But of course, what? so there will be certain industries that do get you know, really uh, disrupted uh, to, in, in quite a serious way in the way that you know, coal mining was in our towns around the UK over the past 100 years. So, so that's definitely going to happen. What it means is humans will be doing much more cognitive work, but at the same time, we'll have artificial intelligence, which will always also be doing some kind of cognitive work. And so I guess we can expect that we are going to be working much more closely with these artificial intelligences. And I suppose in my mind's eye, I've got this idea of it being a unit. You know, it's not just you who reports to the HR department and has your appraisal. It's you and your cobot it's you're a, a mini team or something and that's probably the way it will work you know i've got my digital assistant almost or maybe i become the digital assistant's human assistant <laughs> it depends who has the power in that relationship but i think that's the way it'll end up and we'll have these enhancements or extensions and and that's the way that we'll we'll end up working the interesting thing for me to understand that it will be more using that data or using the artificial intelligence to go through, for instance, if you look at, I think I read an example in the previous book about a lawyer whose job it is to read through all these cases and try and find the right information. And you just give all that information to the artificial intelligence who can do it a lot better. And then it's up to you to come up with a judgment. So be more based on your individual judgment. So your role will still be there. The artificial intelligence is just there to support you in the manual task of, let's say, reading or going through a lot of data. Yes. I mean, a lot of people are talking about GPT-3 at the moment. Um, so the latest iteration that has come out of OpenAI. Are we back to Elon Musk again? Uh, Fully enough. And that 
it is interesting to think of that as a way of starting off your task or your job. So you can say to it, you know, because I, I was talking to people in the advertising industry and saying, well, you always write a creds, uh, creds presentation or do a pitch from scratch. What if you ask the artificial intelligence, you know, start this, start this presentation off for me and then I'll come in at the end and sort of finesse it or whatever. And I think that's how you can think of your jobs in the future I mean there is somebody I do quote in the book who basically said you know write me write me some minutes for the board meeting or you know create a training a training program <laughs> for new entrants to the company and the artificial intelligence can do that and that takes away some of the really routine tasks that perhaps humans don't want to do or perhaps they shouldn't be doing because in the future they're not they're not of the greatest value I think the creative side of it was the really interesting side. I think with the creativity comes the the time to think about things that can actually be innovative. If those manual tasks are no longer incumbent upon a certain subset of the population, then those individuals can then become educated or re-educated into a field that actually is creative in nature, which then actually propels humanity forward. I'm on the optimistical side here yeah. um, in, into a, a place where perhaps that we are either spacefaring or at least making inroads into some of the, the bigger issues in, in that we are suffering from in, in today's society. Definitely spacefaring because that's the next big commercial opportunity. It's interesting when you look at the template that Space Force um, follows, it's the naval one, not the Air Force one. So the naval one is opening up uh, logistical trade routes, if you like. So it's very much, um, I mean, I'm sure that's why Jeff Bezos is so interested in space. It's not because as a young boy, he was really inspired by rockets. It's because there's a massive commercial opportunity and huge trading links interplanetarily. And I guess that's, I mean, it could be both, but I, I guess that's that's probably why. And competition with Elon. I don't think people can displace that as well. And that's part of it as well. Yeah. Exactly. There's a big ego. Of course, there's going to be ego when, you, when you're both running a company of that size. One of the interesting things that I found in the book, you talked about, uh, you mentioned a quote by Lord Sumption, I think mm. is how you correctly pronounce it, saying, I'm, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing this quote, but it says, real freedom is lost when we surrender freedom to threats that are greatly exaggerated. And I thought about a distinction. I recently read a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Mm -hmm. And in that, he gave the distinction between Orwell and Aldous Huxley. And Orwell mm -hmm. had the idea that Big Brother was imposed upon us. But Huxley said that it will actually be us who is willingly letting others govern us. And we are actually implicit in others taking it from us because we actually want an ease. Do you feel like we are more going towards a stage of, let's say, Huxley rather than the, the Orwell Big Brother model? Yeah, I think, although I love them both, I think I'm Team Huxley <laughs> on this one because I think we've seen it. We've seen it in practice over the last year. There is a huge trend towards what I would call safetyism, which is us feeling like we can't really manage the risks on an individual basis anymore. We need somebody to do that for us. And of course, the state is not the only entity, but the state steps in and says, it's our job here to protect you. You know, don't you worry, little heads. Here are the new rules and guidance that you must all conform to. Um, oh, you don't like it over here. Well, that's too bad because it's for the greater good. And actually, whilst we need to be cognizant of the consent of others and uh, you know, compatriots and colleagues, we have to also think about ourselves as a self-sovereign individual. And I think a lot of people, I think about half of society at the moment are in this sort of safetyism world where they want to be protected and they'll almost give away anything in order to feel safe from fear and protected. And there's the other half of the population going, actually freedom is the most important tenet of anything. If you haven't got your freedom, you haven't got anything else. And that's where the big schism is actually, I think in society at the moment, certainly in the UK, probably, and it'll probably play out even more over the next decade. Added to that, we have got a young generation growing up who we are teaching that safetyism is the way forward. You know, words are harmful. We must believe the data. Don't rely on your own instinct because that's not objective. And saying to someone only, only yesterday, actually, that the more research I do with a younger audience, the more I realise that many of them want to have their behaviour regulated because they kind of don't trust themselves. 
And this is a vicious circle, really, because the more we outsource our decisions to machine intelligence or AI, whatever it is, the more we aren't getting any of the feedback. You know, the machine takes the feedback, the machine take, uh, carries out the decision and the information, the data flow goes straight back to the machine to make the next decision. And we're, as humans, out of that process then. Whereas when I was young, I'd have to make a decision and then I'd learn pretty quickly whether that was a good or bad decision because I'd get some feedback in the real world about how terrible that went or how successful it might have been. And you build up over time a knowledge and then a, wis a wisdom so that you can behave very instinctively in life. And I just worry that there's a younger generation who have fallen under the spell of this safetyism and feel like there are machines, intelligences out there that are better at making a decision for them than they are at making it for themselves. And I think that's a bit of a concern. The interesting thing about safetyism or that fact is the interesting thing is how do you separate between educating young people about how to use the technology, but also saying that the technology is good for them in certain situations, but bad for them in certain other situations, because I feel like it's a situational or a context. It's a context thing. It's in which context are you using the technology? Because like we've discussed, you can use it to benefit, for instance, the use of a job function. But obviously, if you use it in a negative way, it can impair you on who's got your data. So it's more contextual. So do you think the education should be on it depends on the context in which you're using it rather than it being objectively good or bad. I think, I think that this isn't about technology. It's about something more fundamental, which is about critical thinking and, and whether that critical thinking is applied to technology or any other question in life. It's a duty to teach a generation to, to teach them how to think, not what to think. And I think that is probably the bit that's missing at the moment. Oh, there are plenty of really clever kids, young people who can think critically, but there is also this undercurrent, um, particularly in some educational spheres where, you know, the teaching establishment thinks it's their job to teach kids what to think rather than how to think. I think if you are taught how to make decisions, given some tools and frameworks and models, and you can then go away and critically think, you can critically think about anything, whether it's about how to apply technology to your own life or the pros and cons of it in a particular scenario or anything else, to be honest. I think that's why, you know, I was going to say, that's why it's really sad to see so many philosophy departments closing and things like that. You, you would want I understand that it's not STEM, you know, you're not going to walk out of doing that as a course and, and straight into a job at a tech company, but it's so important that we have both kinds of people in society and that, you know, ideally people can do both of those things together. Well, it's interesting because it seems like the people who are at the forefront of science or the people that I follow that are the forefront of science, of technology, of startups, even, they're really philosophers more than they are their engineers. Engineers. Yeah, they're engineers, they're technical minded individuals, but they're mm -hmm. really philosophers. And I heard some, I think it was Naval Ravikant who said anyone who lives long enough is a philosopher anyway, because they start to <laughs> sort of. Yes. But of course, you can only be a philosopher king when you are 50 years old. That's really when Plato said, well, when you're 50, you're, you're entitled to become a philosopher king or in fact, a philosopher queen. And so whilst that's true, what Novell says. Um, um, it's, it's like you said, though, it's critical thinking or it's yeah. having intellectual curiosity. That's what I was yes, going to say. Exactly. Having intellectual curiosity is the most, I think is the most important function of the education system. And it's something that I think isn't shared enough. I think more individuals need to share intellectual curiosity or retain intellectual curiosity through the education system because most of the things that I read now I wish I read when I was at school or I wish people or teachers had taught us yes um, because if if they had I think we would I would have a, a deeper level of knowledge or way of thinking than perhaps I, I would have done yeah um, well when I did French uh not Ola, I think it's A level. Gosh, it makes me really sound old. A level. We did um we did Albert Camus, L'Etranger, and then we did the plague. You know, those are the sorts of things, and we would critically analyze those. It wasn't just about learning a language, it was about learning some different ways of thinking, some different alternative philosophies on the world, and then weighing them up and and agreeing what were the you know the good things and bad things. And then that was that was critical thinking, even though you were learning a language. What were some of your favorite philosophers then if you were gonna talk about it briefly <laughs> i don't know really gosh it's such a long time since i did it but 
I mean, I do love Plato's dialogues. I mean, somebody yeah. was asking on Twitter the other day, what's the most important book that people should be reading now? And it's like, it's the Republic, obviously. <laughs> so I, I do, I mean, you could read those dialogues again and again and, and see and feel and understand something different in them every single time, I think. It's just completely timeless. It's timeless. I The thing that I like about, so I studied politics and mm. philosophy at, at university. And the thing that I liked about philosophy in a sense is, yes, it doesn't have practical application in the world in a, in a technical sense but like we've discussed it's questioning because you have to question the established established way of thinking in order to be innovative that's why i think science and philosophy go hand in hand yeah you do need to question and also you need to be questioned and you need to question others and then one of the things that's interesting about philosophy certain as certainly as a as a dialogue is that you may change your mind and again i do feel like at the moment one sort of is compelled to come to a point of view and then stick to it because that's a sign of being loyal to one's tribe and actually probably it's not right to stick to it because somebody will say something you've never thought of they'll have a perspective that is completely fresh and it should change your mind at least to some extent and I think that's one of the things we're missing and one of the things that really makes critical thinking very diff difficult to to do these days. Yeah, I, I can't remember who it was that said this, but a wise person is someone who can hold conflicting ideas at the same time, but yes. still still sort of see both sides. And I think people are very much at the moment, if we're not going to get into a political discussion, they're unwilling to hold two arguments at once because they feel like if they hold two arguments and they are somewhat evil in regards to the worst definitions of each side of the argument. And I think that's a terrible, terrible way to, to look at things because you're view of yourself as well as the objective world changes over time as your thought process changes so yeah. why should you hold to a certain way of thinking it's such a narcissistic view as well it's like my opinions that i cleave to you know are the only opinions that are good you know and right are of good faith and it's it's really not the case somebody just has a different point of view has had a different life experience or expresses themselves differently and well yes well we can agree on that it's uh yeah not a great situation <laughs> i think that the thing that i think was pertinent in your book and i think is something that i feel like a lot of people in this space of tech are going to is the responsibility of the individual or individualism i think when you associate with a larger body, whether that be politically or ideologically, you almost get lost in what does it mean to be me? Who is me? Who is you? What, what does it mean to be a person, human being living in today's society where we have augmented reality and technology? Do you feel like there's going to be a move towards individualism in the next oh. coming decades? <laughs> I really don't. In fact, that's one of the things I'm a little bit concerned about and I think, no, don't get me wrong, communitarianism, community is a good thing, but I don't want it to be so suffocating that the individual has no ability to breathe, no ability, no ability to create some space for themselves. And the reason that I'm worried about this is because I think network technology, I think the internet is inherently networked and therefore social and interconnected, and therefore it is inherently communitarian. Mm -hmm. So we've seen what it's done to media. It's created social media that is created tribes. Um, we can posit that that will be the case in virtual media and immersive media as well, potentially. <clears throat> so it's, it's the interconnectedness. And I do, you know, touch on it in the book when I talk about something like the hive mind. So imagine um, in 40 or 50 years time, we've got a collective consciousness. We can link our brains up to other people's brains. And we talked a little bit about Neuralink. Um, what happens then? Because where is my identity? Where are the boundaries? So if I am exposed to other people's thoughts and they're exposed to mine, <laughs> is it just one big thought blob? I don't know. Mm. I really feel like, well, where are my thoughts? Because I base my actions on my thoughts. And this comes back to needing to be really clear about um, defining you know, identity and personal identity, because you want to say, well, these are rights and responsibilities and duties and emotions that belong to this identity, Orn, and not this identity, Tracy, for example. Mm. And I think you know, that, um, that discrimination there is, is quite important. We need to pull it apart. And I do worry that we're going to end up in this big communitarian sort of 
everybody has to think the same, everybody has to um, behave the same, and everything, anybody that steps out of line or has a different thought or action or behavior or slightly different take on values is, um, is somehow to be you know, uh, sent to Coventry, um, never to darken the door of this tribe again. Well, you're seeing that in China at the moment. I know in the book you said that 80% of culture is now online and 20% is in person in China. And you can see it in China at the moment with their social system in the sense of the, the scoring system, but also the fact that they are they have concentration camps where they send people in order to retrain them if they don't fit into the model. So it's not something that is something of the future. It's happening right now. That's right. And, and it's not evenly distributed. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's not distributed. So I don't know how that model would work in our somewhat society that's somewhat freer in, in, to a degree. So I don't know how that will play out over time. Mm. It'll, be, it'll be interesting conversation to be having in perhaps five or 10 years. When it comes to, I think it'll be, it'll be great to, to talk a bit about the next sort of five to 10 years. Mm. Um, what will happen in the next five to 10 years with the, I want to not talk too much about the actual technology side, because I don't think perhaps we can predict that, but it's more the fact of how we as the individual and in the book, you talk about the future of you. So how each one of us can go about perhaps asking ourselves better questions about how we integrate with technology and, and how we can use it to actually improve our lives rather than perhaps be a burden. Because I think the technology should be there to improve our existing lives and not to be a burden. And I think sometimes it feels like it's a burden to individuals mm. but it's more using it for your benefit what, what do you think are some of the better questions that we need to be asking ourselves when you say it's a burden do you mean that it's what do you mean that it's out of our control or it's no by a burden i think a lot of people are getting overwhelmed by the technological oh, advances yeah. and a lot of people are seeing it as a burden rather than something that can actually improve their lives yes i see so how is it going to how are we going to take it on board but also ensure that it's manageable exactly but it feels it's us managing the technology rather than the technology exactly because i feel like especially with my my mum in particular she always is saying and she's she's not anti-technology at all i mean mm. she obviously uses it all the time but she's like it advances so quickly once i've got a grasp of it i'm, I'm already sort of behind on what comes next and i think that's just going to happen more and more yeah it, it's it's very difficult um it's certainly incumbent on a younger generation to help older generations. But of course, there are plenty of people in the older generation who are real technophiles and they oh, know course, everything. Yeah. And, you course. know, they're, they're, they're leaders in it as well. So it's kind of interesting this is whether there's an age gap or a generational gap or not. I think one just has to do as much research as possible to put oneself in situations where, you know, it might be a little uncomfortable, but at least you're meeting people who have got these ideas about technology. I mean, the great thing right now is there are tons of videos and loads of information online about digital identity, for example. So it's not enough, I think, to just sit and be broadcast at rolling news and be told that it's really, it's really dangerous, a digital ID. You know, I've got thoughts about digital ID that are pros and cons, but I will go and do my own research. And when I get to meet some of the people who are working on distributed identity, you know, all these downloadable apps that you can have on your phone and allows the user, you, to control how your digital identity is used. It's not nothing to do with a centralized state sort of program. It's about how we build up a, a digital wallet full of digital credentials that we can use in our everyday life to actually help us. So for example, if you are, 18, 19 years old or whatever, and you're going into a shop, at the moment, if you have to prove your age, you have to show someone a plastic driving license, which not only has, you know, your age on it, also your birth date and your full address. <laughs> I don't want to necessarily, I'm sure no one will want to be giving all of that information across. But if you get to grips with some of these digital wallet credentials, you can just show them the bit of information that is required and is relevant in that particular circumstance and all the rest of your personal data and details is kept private to you. And these are the sorts of tools that I think people should try to get to grips with. Um, it, it's more difficult for some rather than others, um, but these are the sorts of tools that we can take on ourselves and help us live a more productive and hopefully private life than allowing the situation to escalate where it gets to a point where either the state or a technology platform places on you a system that you're not very comfortable with because there's been a vacuum. So, so I think, you know, some of these very simple technologies that we can use every day uh, are quite interesting. And then if you decide that you want to have a, 
a chip implanted, they go for it, do it, see what it's like every day and how you use it. I know somebody and, you know, I spoke to him for the book who's got one. He says he doesn't even realise it's there these days. He can't feel it, um, you know, uses it for, for whatever he's decided to use it for. I, I've got a, a, a sort of precautionary rather than precautionary attitude towards this, which is we should try to adopt as much of this technology as possible at a personal level until something goes wrong. Um, I don't think we should be stopping it because we're worried about, you know, it's not regulated enough, um, not at an individual level anyway. So we, we should just go for it. And then we, we know, we know our limits. We'll get a feel for what's too far and, and, and what's fine and what's manageable. But the limits change over time. That's the well, interesting thing. That is, that is true. Because it's, it's gradual. Mm. And um, you don't want a company to say, oh, I know you, you know, signed up to these terms and conditions we've decided to change all that now we need your fingerprint or now it's going to depend on you know taking a selfie in a geo location at a particular time of day to prove you, know, you exist or you're you're still the user you don't want that and so but the more people are cognizant of this and can use this stuff then the more you'll have a big group who can lobby against any of those changes if you've just got a few individuals who are are acclimatized to some of these advancements they're not really going to you, you haven't really got a party that can uh, that can lobby against and um, bring a petition or, or stop it from happening i think you saw that i don't know if you watched it but uh, there was a famous video of the head of google i think going to the u.s congress and the, the congressman was trying to explain what whether google tracks you and you can just see he had absolutely no idea what they actually did. And I feel like that is part of the issue. Even the, the regulators or the governments don't even know what these technology companies do. They don't know. And I'm not sure they want to know. You know, they're happy to sort of go along with it for an easy life. And it's a good point, actually, about the kind of people that should be being um, voted into some of our, you know, areas of governance who can really properly and practically you know, uh, influence some of this rather than having lots of old men and women in suits sitting in, you know, dusty rooms asking questions like that, really, which are not helpful to anyone. They're not, especially when they look make, make you look foolish because you're like, <laughs> what, what? So you're the person who's voting on the laws and you yeah. don't even know how it works. And my 11 year old cousin could probably tell you a better sort of uh, definition of what, what Google is. Well, it's, it's one of the interesting things, actually, when I spoke to Audrey Tang, um, the digital minister in the Taiwanese government, we, we, we had a long conversation about, um, you know, how they've made the state so digitized in such a participative way. And so that everybody, no matter, you know, how technological, technologically adept they were, could take part in democracy. So they take the government out on the road, they go to the towns and they take the technology with them. They don't expect everybody to come to, you know, the page or the website or the forum that the government have, um, have, uh, have set up. And one of the things we talked about was how young the voting age could possibly go. I mean, it's quite scary, but she said to me, oh no, um, I think, you know, 14 year olds, in the future should be having the vote and I think one of the reasons for that is because of this digital proficiency they'll have we can ponder how much other experience they may or may not have but it was an interesting take wasn't it you know and um, you know 14 year olds should have the vote because they should be part of the demos that is helpful in transforming a nation state and helpful to its citizens to become a digital nation. Mm. It's an interesting one the voting age one I think it's an interesting conversation because what's it to say that a 16 year old doesn't have a better idea of the system than someone who's perhaps in their mid thirties? Why, why does age play a, play a role just because of experience? Cause you can have someone who's perhaps 16 and had better lived experience than someone who's in their mid thirties. So it's an interesting conversation to have. I do think it's interesting. It's something I have changed my mind on slightly um, as I've got more into this. I, I think it's worth a bigger, more public conversation. Definitely. Definitely. Do you think technology is going to help that? Yes, I imagine. Because even if you look at technology that helps online voting in somewhere like Estonia, the, the minute you can vote digitally, it brings in like a whole new constituency, you know, that wouldn't go to vote in person. And so you can imagine what the profile is of that new constituency. And then that can start to change some of the things that happen through our governance. Mm, it's exciting exciting yeah, i think these I think so. questions these these big questions i think is what makes this topic very very interesting i feel like we could ponder on it for 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 a long period of time 
thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today to discuss uh, the book, The Future of You, Can Your Identity Survive 21st Century Technology? Thank you, Tracy, for taking the time to, to speak with us today. Where's the best place people can find you on social? Now we're talking about technology. Oh, yes. I'm on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter at Tracy Futures, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn and you can get the book. It's published through Elliot and Thompson. It's um, through the bookshop or Amazon or any of the usual places. Any of the usual places. Definitely, definitely recommend it for an introduction to the topic. Thank you, Tracy. Oh, thank you. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe for more content. Also, visit our website, www booktalktoday.com to subscribe and download the latest edition of our magazine. Join our mailing list to receive the first issue for free to get a taste for the value-packed content that we are offering. Book Talk Today, for readers, by readers.